0: Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now, here's Pastor Chris with today's message.
1: We're in Luke chapter 9, and uh, I want to speak with you for the next few minutes about the purpose of church. That's the big picture. And uh, let me introduce the message this way. In a study I was looking at recently, uh, I was, well, I was confronted statistically with some things that you kind of know intuitively. For instance, in the United States, according to this recent study, in the United States, one out of three people are dissatisfied with the place that they work. One out of three. You're saying, man, we're killing that average. But anyway, one out of three are dissatisfied with the place they work. Hey, four out of five lack a passion for the job that they do. In other words, only one in five people in America today working would say I'm passionate about the thing that I do. At the top of that list, believe it or not, folks in ministry at the very top that were not at the that aren't passionate those that that those are the most passionate most satisfied people number one on the list today is clergy at the bottom of that list you'd find uh, various aspects of service industry not surprisingly many in the medical profession and even educators fit down at the bottom now that kind of surprised me a little bit when I started looking at that and trying to understand, I went, I went on into the study to try to understand why is that? What are some of the reasons? And here, if you could kind of net out the, 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 the number of reasons and move past researcher bias and all of that, here's what it really boiled down to. Folks got into a particular field thinking it was for one reason or that it would produce one thing and then realizing when they looked behind the curtain that it actually produced something else. In fact, the very bottom, I don't know if I have any surgeons in here, but the least satisfied people in their field were surgeons, medical surgeons. Now, that's kind of, that's kind of interesting to me. And I, I thought, well, why is that? I mean, I've seen MASH and all those TV dramas and everything. And, hey, you know what? That's probably why. They had a picture of this glamorous thing that it was going to be and then realized that their, their day-to-day was pretty sterile that's a joke you'll catch on to it in just a minute all right it just it just pretty uh it just it's different than what maybe it was they had in their mind caused me to think about a conversation i had in recent days with uh, a person here in the city who said to me well i'm a member of a church and is a distant place we won't talk about the place but in a distant place i said well tell me about that why is that well I think the church ought to be engaged in changing the world, and I've never found a congregation around here that did that, that focused on it. And I thought, you know what, that, that makes sense. I, I get where you're coming from. Because here's the deal. Just as somebody could be dissatisfied with their job or lack passion in their in the way they're employed, some could think that church was supposed to fulfill one set of purposes. But in actuality, it it actually fulfilled something totally different. Churches could do that. They could say, man, we exist for the mission and then spend all their time sitting in in the house. And if they did that and said, man, this is pleasing. Well, then it's bound to lead to an unfruitful, unfulfilling dissatisfied kind of way of thinking. So the best way to figure out how does church make sense is to go back to the designer and understand what did God call us together for? What did he gather us together for? What's the reason why people are, uh, have as a habit and a practice and an act of worship and a response before God? What is the reason they get up early on a Sunday morning and they gather themselves together? What's the purpose? What's the Rationale, what's the the motive behind all of that from God's perspective? That's what we're going to look at. The passage we're looking at today kind of kicks off a focus that we're going to look at for the next several weeks on the purpose and the function and the reason and the mission of just this thing that we got up and did this morning, the church. Now, before you start yawning at me and going, we already got that, we're here, do we? I mean, do we really got it? Or are we working off a TV image like something that's in our mind, but in reality, that's not actually it. That's what I want us to kind of think through over these next several weeks together is in this passage, we're going to see the Lord drawing together some of his earliest followers and then scattering them throughout the surrounding villages with a message and a mission to preach the gospel and to heal brokenness wherever they find it. And I want to suggest to you today that in 2,000 years, that purpose nor that mission has changed. Luke chapter 9, I want to focus on the first six verses. And if you're able, can I invite you to stand with me in honor of the Word of God? Luke 9, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. Luke 9 and 1. And he, Jesus, called the 12 together, and he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, and as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And departing... They began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Paul's right there. Father, even in these moments that we're gathered together, Lord, would you instruct our hearts and then find our response to you. One that is pleasing, one that glorifies your name, one that fulfills that for which you have created us. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Damien thank you for standing you be seated if you'd like to follow along on an outline I've got I want to kind of walk you through this text and I want to do it by the way of the movements that you notice in the text So I've got three movements I want to show you in this message simply entitled gathered to be scattered and uh, you'll find that outline if you'd like to follow along on our church app. So you could go there to sermon notes and you'll see where that outline is and you can see uh, the kind of the points in the text and all that's built off of because what I hope is is that this isn't the last time that you look at it because man, that's what you do if you're coming to a sporting event as a spectator. But as students of the word that this would be something that edifies you throughout the week as you go back and revisit and relook at this with me. If you don't have the um, the the church app you can still get the outline by texting the word notes to the number on the screen we'll send that to you to the number on the screen we'll send that to the number on the screen and uh well you know the number it's uh yeah I'm waiting on it there it is praise the lord our tech man computers are getting slower and slower these days and uh yeah, uh, I am thank you for joking along with me and the folks up in the nest. If you and I had to keep up with what those folks have to keep up with every single day and in all the pieces just to keep it rolling, you would, you'd be amazed at what they do. And I'm grateful for them and the work they put together to make that happen. All right. Hey, three things I want you to notice with me. Notice with me, first of all, the purpose revealed. The purpose Revealed. As we talk about this message, gathered to be scattered, what are we talking about? Jesus gives us, lays out for us, explains for us the very purpose for which He has called us together. Notice with me in verse 2. It says, and He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom and to perform healing. Now verse 1 told us that He had brought together the twelve. And the disciples, man, can I just say to you, if you're recruiting a team of guys to, be, to lead a movement that's going to impact the world, these 12 guys are not the first ones that come to mind. In fact, they don't even make the B team or the C team. They're actually in the list of people down where Chris Aiken was when it was time to pick a kickball team in elementary school. After you picked all the good players, you're in that final negotiation where they say, hey, you could just take the rest of them. And that's where this 12 fit. Notice uh, Matthew gives it in his parallel account of this. Matthew 10 verses 2 to four. Listen to the 12 to the names of the 12. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these: The first Simon, who's called Peter, and then there's Andrew, his brother, and James, the, sons of, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Then Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Now, in this list, you find a number of different qualities and characteristics that Jesus entrusts the mission to. You've got introverts and extroverts. You've got business owners, and then you've got government officials. You've got political appointees and anti-government activists, probably roommates, and what you will notice is that there's not one religious professional among all of them. Yet every one of them were spiritual seekers. They all were, hey, if we could just use the term, they were all church members. They were folks that had been faithful in Saturday school. You get that in a minute, their Jewish background. In Saturday school, they were, they were folks that had been looking for the Messiah. I know because when Andrew went to Peter, he said, we found the Messiah, Well, why would you say that unless you was looking for him? They were looking for the Messiah. They were expecting God's redemption. They were familiar with the Jewish teachings. They were familiar with God's promises. Yet not one of them had been to seminary. Not one of them were uh, on a church staff anywhere or working at the synagogue. They were just people carrying on the, the wherewithal of daily life. And yet Jesus picks them. Now, the purpose of gathering the 12 together was, believe it or not, simply to scatter them with two primary tasks. We saw it in verse 2, to perform uh, or to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healings, uh, to to preach the kingdom and to repair brokenness, to to, uh, preach the kingdom and to make the world a better place, uh, address human suffering in the world. They weren't gathered together for religious entertainment or for a ministry conference or for a potluck fellowship. He didn't draw them together for any of those reasons. Rather, he he gathered them together so that he could scatter them for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel and to address brokenness in their midst. He gathered the church to scatter the church with a kingdom message and a compassion mandate. Now, let me just give you this just as an aside. I know a lot of people who uh, with curiosity and have, uh, they have curiosity and opinions about whether that latter part of that mandate still exists today. In other words, they would say, well, we get preach the kingdom, that makes perfect sense, but I don't know if we're supposed to be going around healing brokenness. Can I say to you, I, I, I hear you, I, I know where that comes from actually, because I'm a student of history and church history even. But But in reality, you'd have to get up really early in the morning to outsmart Jesus on this. He left it with two components of a mission, to proclaim the kingdom and to heal sickness. Proclaim the kingdom and heal sickness. Those are the two components that he gave and neither you nor I could could honestly sit back if we're a student of the scripture and say that one part of that no longer applies today. It all applies and we ought to hold those with a level of tension Of equality, not in dominance over something that's uh, subordinate to the other. In other words, we don't do all the preaching until the preaching's done and then we heal. We don't do all the healing and addressing brokenness and sprinkle it with gospel. But yet we proclaim the gospel and we bring healing and we bring healing while proclaiming the gospel. And both of those things fit together like a hand in a glove, like peanut butter and jelly, like socks and shoes. They're not in conflict with one another. And that's exactly how Jesus designed it to be. Here's what we know. Most healings were signs to authenticate a message. But you'd have to be biblically illiterate or theologically unfaithful to ignore the fact that Jesus was moved with compassion over brokenness. It bothered him. When he looked out and he saw brokenness in the world in which he walked, he knew he was God's son. He knew he's the Messiah. He knew he's the coming kingdom. He knew he's the message and the hope. And yet he was still broken over the brokenness around him. He had compassion and he was moved by it. Brokenness and pain and suffering were not props and a drama for him, they were conditions to be addressed and healed. Now, can I just say, rarely does anybody ever argue over the first part. They believe that announcing the rule of God and the good news of Jesus is something that the church is supposed to do, even if they don't do it well. There's not really anyone who who, uh, accurately, regularly, convictionally disputes the proclamation of the kingdom. Proclaiming is not to debate... Or to try to reason, it's to announce. Now here's why I said that. Jesus didn't say go and debate the kingdom of God. He didn't say go and try to convince of the kingdom of God. He sent his disciples out to proclaim, to announce the kingdom of God. To debate or to argue is a is to try to win someone to what may or may not be a truth for them. To announce is to say this is, a, this is a fact, it's gravity. You can say it doesn't exist, but the fact of the matter is, is it's gravity. It does exist. In fact, your feet are held firmly where they are. Your, your seat's in a seat because of it. You could say you don't believe in it, but if it won't true, you'd be floating announcing the kingdom of God is just as certain as all of that now listen we do convince and we do debate and we do argue a point but we do so because we're absolutely certain that the kingdom is true even if other people would 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 declare that they're just as certain that it's not and we want to see people come to understand Friends, some today either assume that either everybody knows the kingdom is as it is and that, or they shrink back because not everyone believes the kingdom of God. But can I say to you the purpose of the church is to announce it's not been rescinded. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples, followers of all the people groups in the world. That's why we pray for people like the, the Kahar people. Why, it's why we for, pray for a different people group every single week. Jesus said for us to make disciples of all people groups. We're to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded. And we do so with the promise that, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said he empowered us for this. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be witnesses of me. You'll be witnesses of me in all Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Mark 16 and verse 15, go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to all creatures. That's pretty all-encompassing, even for the Bible. We, that the message of proclamation has never been backed up. So let me just give you a statement that's helpful to me. A church that does not scatter to proclaim the reign of Christ and to address brokenness, is a gathering of people rebelling against God's defined purpose. A church that gathers together, that does does not scatter to proclaim the reign of Christ and to address brokenness is a gathering of people rebelling against God's defined purpose. That's true then and it's true today. Notice secondly, not only the purpose revealed, but notice with me the power invested. Now, one of the most common inhibitors to people embracing the purpose of God is a sense that I, I, I'm not sure I can. I'm not sure I can proclaim the kingdom, Chris. I'm not sure I can address brokenness. I'm not sure it's in my will. I'm not sure I'm able. Or who am I to, to go and, and, and take my truth and press it in on somebody else's truth? It's a statement about ability or a statement about authority. By the way, though the resistance there, that sense of unpreparedness or anxiousness is a necessary, it's a natural outcome to the work of the enemy working against what Jesus has told us is our job to do. The devil, uh, the devil likes to tell us that we're not worthy. He loves to tell us we're not able. He loves to whisper in our ears that we're not prepared or we're not capable. But he's a liar. And no no matter what, he's lying. Even if, even if obeying Jesus sounds unbelievably difficult, it must be possible. And to tell you otherwise is a lie. Because Jesus never commands us to do something that he does not also provide with the ability to do it and the authority to do as he's told us to do. The second source of this anxiousness that comes or resistance comes is our own unawareness of what's been entrusted to us. That's why Luke began these six verses, why he began by telling us what Jesus had invested in. us. So look at verse one. It says, and he called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases. He gave them power and and authority over all demons and to heal diseases. Power. It's the Greek word dunamis. It's where we would get the word dynamite. It means that that ability is what Jesus said. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. It's the, it's the ability to carry out the task and authority. Exousia. It's the right to carry out the task. Some people have, have power, but they don't have the right to do it. Now I'm old and I'm probably not as strong as I once were, but I still have the ability to grab a hold of somebody and place them under arrest. I could grab a hold of them and pin them down until the law got there. But I have no authority anymore. That's back when I was uh, That's back when I was Barney Fife. I'm not Barney anymore. Andy didn't tell me to go out and arrest Otis. So I have no authority. I have a, I have ability, but no authority. The disciples had both ability and. Authority. Jesus invests both ability and the right to use that ability to preach and to heal. And he invests it not only in them, but in us today. So some might ask, well, is there still a gift invested that's invested in Christians today? Here's what they mean. And this is where all the debate comes from. Nobody debates preaching. Yep, you've got the responsibility to do that and the ability to preach. But to heal to address brokenness? Is that something that's still invested today in that? I would say not in a universal sense as though God somehow said, you know, John Robinette, in your hand is healing power. uh, If so, you'd be in high demand at every hospital that came along. They'd be like, John, just work your way up and down the hall there and just bring, it's not in some universal sense, but I'd argue that wasn't true in the scriptures either. In fact, when Jesus went to the, this is free, when Jesus went to the pool at Bethesda, it was covered up with sick people, but he only healed one. Now you could try to figure out why. I just it makes me scratch my head, it causes a meltdown. But all I can tell you is, is he's God, and I, I can't really argue that he didn't do right. I can just say I don't quite understand why he did what he did. So does God still invest a power, a gift to heal today? I, Again, not in a universal sense, I don't think, but I have read a lot of testimonies of some people asking God for healing and God healing and people giving God praise for it. So I know it happens. I just don't think you can go to school and take a seminary class in it. Nor do I think you can take a discipleship class in it nor do I think it comes built into the code like you get your T-shirt, your window decal at Englewood and the ability to raise the dead. I, I don't think those three things are in the package. Pastor Jordan sends out boxes for people who are new to Englewood. None of those carry with them the authority to raise the dead. None of those boxes have that built into them. If you did, I'm telling you, Pastor Jordan, more people would sign up as guests at Englewood. They'd like to, and some of them be like, I'm never using that. I know who, anyway, you get the idea. So there's that. So, So, is that a gift still invested? Uh, not necessarily. What we do have though is the ability and the right to address brokenness that exists around us today. We have power and ability to address brokenness. Jesus also was investing in his disciple something beyond that power and that authority. He was working in them to develop something within them that would give them confidence in using that. Jot down, if you would, Luke, uh, we'll just look at verses uh, three to five. Notice what he says there in verse three. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not even take two tunics, two coats, whatever shirt, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave the city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from the city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. You may say, now wait a minute, Jesus would never have made a good Boy Scout. Here's what he told him: I want you to go, but I want you to go unprepared. What, uh, unprepared? You mean you don't want me to take a, you don't want me to take a backpack Was with extra food in there? Nope. What about a staff for, for predators that might come up? Nope. Well, do you want me to call ahead and make reservations? No, I don't want you to do that either. Well, do you want me to, I mean, how do we know where the friendlies are? <laughs> There are none. Where you're going, nobody knows yet. Go. Why would he send them out without any of the comforts or the safety net or the security? Simply stated, because he was building faith in them. You realize you don't build faith sitting up on a mountaintop. You build faith in valleys. You don't build faith in abundance. You build faith when poverty. When you're struggling, is where you learn how to trust. When you're living in, in luxury is where you demonstrate how you trust. But you learn it down here. Jesus was building faith in the apostles that way. Did it work? Man, it amazed them. Jot down Luke chapter 9 verse 10. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all they had done. Insert parentheses. Without their knapsack of extra groceries. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. You mean Jesus was taking these little, these journeys of faith, these steps of, of an unknown, he was using those to build something inside the apostles? Yes, he was teaching them to trust him. Someone said recently, they said, uh, it seems to us it would be neat if God would tell us what all he's got in store for us before we ever sign up. Can I just tell you, I think if God told us what the fullness of the journey looked like before he signed us up, many of us would just turn around and run the other way. We'd be like, man, I don't know if I can do that. We'd be scared. And along the way, he says, I'm, I've got you. Walk with me. I'm gonna teach you things as we go. That's why when we get... I was going to say old. I don't want to say old. When we get some miles on the tires, the stuff that used to get us worked up in our early days don't work us up as much. We're like, you know, that's going to work its way out. We've been here before. I know what it's like to live like that. Just trust the Lord. Keep walking. Keep moving forward, and you're going to see God do things. That's what he did with the disciples. They went out. I guarantee you there was enough weirdness in that group of guys. Somebody said, man, I wish we'd brought an extra can of tuna. I mean, probably won't Peter, but one of them probably said that. Somebody sat there and said, man, if I get cold, I'm taking your shirt. I've not, I brought another one, but that's because I'm taking yours, boy. And I'm sure there was something like that going on there. And yet, all throughout the journey, Jesus not only allowed a response to the message, but he allowed them to see God work through them to address brokenness. He was building faith in them. So much like Mary, the mother of Jesus, who stored up and treasured in her heart all of the investments of prophecies and all of the steps along the journey, much like she built that up in her heart and pondered it, much like a a bricklayer takes and just builds a course of bricks on top of the course that it's already been laid until he completes the wall. Much like those things, God builds our faith in such ways. Jesus intentionally placed the disciples in a position where they would feel unprepared so that they could realize his provision. Now, some would say, man, I wish I'd lived back then. I could have watched Jesus do some crazy stuff. Really? Did you really want to live back then? Didn't the majority of those who followed after Jesus just stick with him for a sandwich and then they kind of disappeared when he started telling them how things were going to get tough? If you wonder how that looks, try John six, for instance, Jesus is teaching them. And he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part of me. And they said, you're weird and sick. You make my tummy hurt. And he says, and they left him departing to follow him no more. And Jesus turned to the 12 and he said to them, are you going too?" Peter? Who'd already been through some stuff speaking on behalf of the 12 says, Lord, where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Now, do you think that just popped into his head? No. He had learned that. He had listened. He had walked through the journey till he got to a place of unknown. And he said, by faith, I'm going to take a step forward. I'm going to take a step forward. God's building something in him. Matter of fact, you might be wondering, what's he doing in my life? Could it be he's just building another course of bricks? Could it be he's trying to stretch and, develop your faith the same way he's been doing it all this time? Could it be that he calls you to take a step into the unknown to do something by way of obedience so that he can show you how big he is so that the next step, which you don't even know about yet, which you could never handle today, that next step, you'll be that much better prepared, ready to take on the next unknown? That seems to be the testimony of scripture i want you to notice with me that uh that while you might not have followed after him you might ask the question does jesus even do that kind of stuff today well i mean is the question you're really asking or if jesus isn't doing that stuff today does that mean that the demons have dried up or gone away that diseases have all been cured no does it mean God's become disinterested or impotent? Maybe God's gotten old and he's not able to do healings and he's not able to change the world today. No, I don't, I don't think that's it either. Maybe the reason we don't see these kind of things in our midst has nothing to do with the, the right or the ability and has nothing to do with what God's called us to. Maybe it has everything to do with this third thing. So notice not the purpose revealed and the power invested, but number three, notice the personal obedience. You see, here's right, right here, honest to goodness before Jesus, this is where the wheels fall off. It's not that God's changed, he hadn't. It's not that the world got better, it hadn't. It's not that uh, God changed his heart or his mind or, he's, or any of those things. None of that's true. Here's where it falls off. Some folks aren't obedient. Look at verse 6. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Departing, leaving, they began to preach in the villages and healing disease everywhere. Wait, they went? Yeah, you remember that rousing sales pitch Jesus gave them. Don't you? Preach the gospel, heal sickness. Don't take any extra stuff with you, trust me. And they said, can I tell you, who with me thinks that's a pretty tall order? Trust me. Just trust me, go to India, trust me. We sent out two, we sent out two mission teams this morning. Uh, one to Orlando to minister to many of our partners, many of them from North Africa uh, that are back to minister to their families, so that they're involved in a big conference. We sent another team that went to Moldova to work among Ukrainian refugees. Can I tell you, they know very little about where they're going. They know very little about the mission and whatever they did know, probably will get flexed before they get there. Why in the world would anybody go and sign up for that? Jesus hadn't changed. Call and commission hadn't changed. Why not go? That's what separates those that get to see God do stuff from those that only read about it. And that's what's going on here. That's why I'm amazed at verse 6. They personally did what Jesus called them to do. They began going throughout all the villages, proclaiming the gospel and healing everyone. It's one thing to have have your own orders. It's another thing to embrace them. And Jesus gave instructions and invested the ability and the right to carry them out. But they still had to obey. These men departed going where they were directed, proclaiming the message and exercising the gifts that were entrusted to them. And that's the disconnect for many. You and I, listen, the world's not gotten wickeder. I don't even think that's good grammar. It's not gotten more wicked. It's not gotten more dangerous for Christians. As I told somebody recently, as far as I know, lately they've not taken any Christians in North Carolina and lit them on fire as candles. It's not gotten crazier for us. They used to kill Christians for sport. The gospel hasn't gotten less. We've just gotten less active with the gospel. Chris, I, I read some day, I read somewhere where God was saving people by the hundreds. How come we don't see that? How many witnesses? How much telling? How much? Hey, listen. I told y'all last week, I think it was, I didn't catch it, maybe it's two weeks ago. I I didn't catch no fish that weekend. The reason was I didn't go fishing. That was one of the reasons. I might have gone fishing and not caught anything, but at least I'd have said I was at least showed up. Because I had seen nobody saved in a while. Let me ask you a crazy question. Crazy question. Did Jesus tell you and me to go and proclaim the gospel? Wait, wait, here it is, international sign language so you don't have to talk in church and upset God's digestion. Did God tell us to go and proclaim the gospel? Did he give us the authority to proclaim the gospel? Did we proclaim the gospel? Well, you know, I was just waiting on a chance. Not enough lost people? Couldn't find none? Ain't no lost people around? Nowhere, not one Friday night, nowhere, you couldn't find one lost person. Or do we lack personal obedience? See, at the end of the day, the reason we don't see God do all that God wants to do has less to do with him and more to do with us. Commands haven't changed, the authority hasn't changed, his plan and purpose hasn't changed. But the obedience may have. These men, they went and did exactly what they were told to do. And the foundation, listen, of faith that had been laid for them and continued to grow in them imperfectly was what God used to do it. And by the way, that was all before Pentecost. See, after Pentecost, things got really crazy, didn't they? Remember? Remember? Peter, after Pente- before Pentecost, he's like, Shazam, Lord, you see what you did? After Pentecost, he's like, Shazam, Lord, look what you did. Peter went from arguing with Jesus and telling him, don't say stuff like that, Lord. I'm just going to tell you, I would have loved to have had a bucket of popcorn and been a fly on the wall when that conversation took place. Except I probably would have been in it. Can't you imagine yourself telling the Lord, Lord, don't say that. That's a bit radical for us. Peter went from shrinking back from being capricious, go back and forth, to man standing up boldly at Pentecost and proclaiming the gospel nobody like nobody's bit. Acts chapter 2 contains his sermon at Pentecost. Holy Spirit comes on them. He begins to preach with boldness. I mean, he has taken no prisoners and all of that. And whatever he said must have had some power with it because verses 38 and 39 said this. After they heard his sermon, they said, what do we have to do to be like that? And Peter said... Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Here's what he said. I've got an accessible promise for you. It's available for you. If you'll repent, if you'll identify with Jesus through baptism, receive forgiveness. The Holy Spirit will empower you to be a part of this movement. You're saying, how was their invitation that day? Verse 41 recorded 3,000 baptisms that day. They'd never heard a sermon before. Actually, that's not true. They had heard sermons about what God promised he might do. No, I'm sorry, what God promised he'd do that they thought he might do. You know, when God promises something, it's not in the question mark category, only our obedience to it. And yet, that day, 3,000 people hearing the gospel said, me too, I want that. That was left, of course, with all rainbows and unicorn and parades and cupcakes and everything for all, no. All that did was, excuse me, ticked hell off. Acts chapter 4 records threats against Peter and John for healing a, a lame man who's, who sat outside, I was going to say stood outside the gate, that would have been weird, who sat outside the gate begging for alms. And they said, Silver and gold we do not have, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, arise and walk. And he stood up, he was strengthened. He started telling everybody, God changed my life. And, and the response from the religious community is, Bring those two preachers in here. And they threatened them. Told them they were gonna get whooped. But here's how they prayed. When they gathered back together with with the rest of the body, they said, Lord, take note of their threats and fill us with boldness that we might boldly proclaim the truth in the face of all this stuff. And the Bible says, and the place where they were was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to proclaim with boldness. Whatever level of bold they had hit, won't the right one. And they went up a level. They leveled up again, asking God to keep doing what he was doing. Acts chapter six, the very first deacon in the church, a guy named Stephen, turned out to be a pretty powerful preacher. In Acts chapter six, he, uh, he's called and he begins to preach. He's arrested. He's brought in before a bunch of dudes and he really starts waxing eloquent. And starts telling them, Jesus is dead because y'all killed him, but God raised him. And they didn't like that at all. And while they were, while they were resisting him and pushing back and, and, and wailing against him, while everything within them was pushing against this message, Jesus. <laughs> Stephen looks up. says, I see the Son of God standing at the right hand of the throne. You ever seen that? It was in the midst of intense persecution, of resistance to the gospel that he saw that. Look at it, Acts 7 verse 55 and following. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that so affected him, seeing Jesus so messed him up, that as they grabbed rocks and began to stone his body, bringing him to a place of bruising and, and, uh, and brokenness and all of that's happening. The only image in his mind is the Son of Man standing to receive him. The hope that's out there. His circumstances didn't hold him back. And he says, and Lord forgive them for what they're doing right now. You say, where did he get the courage for that? Looking at the Son of God standing up. Waiting to receive him. Some say, I don't have the courage to preach the gospel. Have you seen Jesus? Have you looked to what he promised? To what he said is true? Have you gazed into the heavens and noticed him standing there going, I got you. I see you. I've called you. Tell it like it is. And watch what happens. And then as they... I can't imagine this, as they pelted him with rocks. These aren't pebbles. These are stones intended to kill someone. And as they pelted his body with them, the only thought on his mind is, God, don't charge that against them. Make it so one day they could be gathered up too. I'm going to tell you, there had to be something about seeing Jesus like that that caused you to get outside your normal Friend, I want to say to you, the power of God has not changed. God's not grown old or gotten weary. He's not moved on from the gospel, and he's not changed his purpose to some other means of delivery. He still cares for the world through his people, just as he has from the very beginning. Do you realize when he created the garden, he entrusted the garden to Adam and Eve? Whenever God creates something, he entrusts it to his people. This world we live in, you might think it's a mess, but it's ours. Let me say it again. You weren't listening. You may think it's a mess, but it's your mess. It's my mess. It's our mess. It's our city. It's our state. It's our nation, warts and all. It's our world. That's our war going on. And he said, you're my people. Do something about it. He's called us to that. When you become a Christ follower, you don't join some cool club. You enlist in a mighty army to be a part of changing the world. And to see God standing to receive, regardless of what comes against us. Hey, listen, God's big enough to fix the brokenness around us. God's big enough to address broken homes. God's big enough to correct thinking on gender dysphoria. God's big enough to change the conversation from you took away my right to terminate a pregnancy to every one of those children are created in the Imago day and have inherent dignity and ought to be protected by anyone strong enough to protect them. And their mamas and daddies ought to be taught how they can live and love and flourish while being part of that protecting story. And the people of God can be a part of that. You and I have been called to be a part of that. You say, well, I've never gotten involved in anything like that. Fortunately for you and I, there's always today. Because see, here's what's true. I'm going to say this. I've got to be done because the clock ran faster than the preacher. The mission's non-negotiable. Obedience is. God's power and the authority to exercise it. Non-negotiable. He's already promised it and declared it. Our obedience to use it, to proclaim and to heal, is in the question mark category. God's victory is unquestionable. Our presence around the throne, celebrating it, is in the question mark category. But it doesn't have to be. Jesus said, I came that you'd have life and life abundant. And listen, I don't think abundant life is getting a new shiny car, though that may be for you. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about putting your head down at night, knowing that you are part of something bigger than yourself. And God chose you to be a part of it. And the world's a better place because you and I together jumped in. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking, Chris, I've never thought about the gospel like that. I've never thought about the call of Christianity. I've never thought about it like that before. I know, but what about today? And see, if you're here today and you've never yielded to that purpose, that mission, that calling, today's your day. You ought to do that. You say, "Well, I'm not even at there. I'm I'm watching from my kitchen in Timbuktu." You, you do, Still Lord of Timbuktu he is. And the same invitation still applies. Maybe you'd respond to it today. Would you pray with me?
0: Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com slash next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.